Hi everyone, thank you so much for being patient during the little break I took with Ocean Pancake. I am back now and the first episode is extremely important and it talks about the humpback whale incidents we have had here in Western Australia. So today I'm joined by Kate Sprogis, Dr. Kate Sprogis, who is one of the marine researchers, marine scientists, uh, helping create the recommendations for swimming with humpback whales and all these interactions. So we have a chat about why the recommendation said to not swim with humpback whale mother and calves, why they should not be interrupted during their migratory patterns, what can cause them to stress out, that actually different types of driving can contribute to stress for humpback whales, and um, all about what was currently happening, what is currently happening with humpback whale swimming in Western Australia and comparing statistics of humpback whale injuries across the world. Every day there's a new news story about the crisis facing our ocean, whether it's the plastic issue, overfishing, pollution. If the oceans die, we die. Fortunately, we have plenty of environmental activists, marine conservationists, and eco-warriors who are out there every day fighting to protect our oceans and our Earth. On the Ocean Pancake Podcast, we're going to be hearing from some of them about how to decrease our environmental footprint, go plastic-free, participate in ocean conservation, cleanups, and even maybe some marine science. So, welcome to the Ocean Pancake Podcast, where the goal is sustainability and living a turquoise life. My name is Kat Andreskova, and I'm your host today. Let's get into this week's episode. Welcome back to the Ocean Pancake Podcast. Today I'm here with Dr. Kate Sprogis, who is a marine mammal researcher with a focus on whales and dolphins. So welcome to the podcast, Kate. Thank you very much for having me. I am so excited to have you here today because I'm a massive fan of um, dolphins and whales and I could spend hours talking about them. But most importantly, we need to talk about some very, very serious stuff that's been happening in the humpback whale, whale watching industry. Yes. So... Off Western Australia, it's just the start of the swim with whale, humpback whale season. Mm-hmm. And this is the time that the whales are migrating north. So they're migrating north from Antarctica, which is their feeding ground. And they travel along the Western Australian coastline out to the warmer tropical waters to have their calves and to breed. And when they pass the Ningaloo Reef, this is an area where they've introduced the swim with humpback whale tourism. And this is the area where in the last week there's actually unfortunately been two incidences with humpback whales and humans where the the tourists have been injured. And yeah, so that's what we'll be discussing today. Before we get into that, uh, let's let's take it back a bit and just chat a little bit about humpback whales, um, their migration, like what is actually happening and why are we having such larger numbers of humpback whales this year than ever before going up and down the coast of Australia? So in Western Australia, we have the largest humpback whale population in the world. 
it's estimated that it's around 30,000 individuals. And this is really excellent news. And we're very lucky to have such a large population of whales. And they migrate up to the warmer waters to have their calves. It's really unknown why they're traveling 6,000 kilometers to have their calves. There's many hypotheses out there about migration and about what drives migration, but that's a whole topic within itself. Mm -hmm. um, but when they are migrating, they're actually not feeding. So they'll be traveling all the way along the coast. They might have a, a little feed every now and then, but it's very opportunistic depending on if anything is available. But primarily, they're, they're living off their fat stores. So they're building up a lot of fat in, uh, in their blubber from Antarctica, from the krill that they're feeding on down there. And they're relying on these fat stores as they're migrating up towards the Kimberleys. And then they have to migrate back down um, in the, so that they're back in Antarctica for the summertime which is when they're able to feed again. So it's several months where they're fasting and they're relying on their fat stores. And just for people who might be confused with the summer winter here in Australia, it's summertime um, from about December to March and wintertime is in um, May to um, August, which is kind of backwards for us from the Northern Hemisphere, but just to clear that up. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. I have noticed how many humpback whales there are going up and down the coast. I mean, I live uh, just a little bit north of Exmouth, Ningaloo, which is where we're going to be talking about shortly. And every time we go out on the boat, there's so many humpback whales that my partner um, almost hates them. He's like, they're dangerous. I'm scared of hitting them. They're everywhere. And um, that's really amazing to, to know that their numbers have recovered so well from, you know, being close to uh, extinction couple of decades ago due to whaling. Uh, but now there's so many that, of course, as us humans, um, we want to get into the water and kind of experience them. Um, have you had the chance to swim with whales? And like, how, what was your first whale interaction like? So I've never intentionally swam with whales. Mm -hmm. um, I've always had an appreciation of whales and dolphins since I was young. I grew up surfing on the east coast of Australia and I always appreciated watching the humpback whales from the coast as they're migrating up the coast. So back when it was at the whaling days, the Western Australian population is thought that they were nearly down to only about 200 whales. And now it's their, their population has been increasing 12 to 13%, which is a little bit higher than what's happening on the east coast of Australia, which is increasing at 11%. But there needs to be another population estimate because that was done quite a few years ago. So there, there is definitely, you know, around 30,000, but some years there might be a lower year. Mm -hmm. So, for example, when I was doing research in Exmouth last year, it was just very low. So some days we would be in the boat 
maybe six hours trying to find a mother and calf in late October. And there would just be um, no mother and calves around. We'd put the hydrophone in the water, try to find, see if there were any singing males. And a lot of the time it was very quiet or there, were, there was no singing. Um, whereas the year before it was, there was a lot of whales and it was, it was very different to last year. So there's sometimes pulses. So each year might be different and it, and we're not sure why this is, but it, last year the low numbers were actually low across the Indian Ocean as well. So our colleagues in um, the Western Indian Ocean were also reporting lower numbers. So yes, we've got the largest population and we're not sure what's going to happen this year with the humpback whales and how big the numbers will be. But when you do go out on the boat, you do have to be very careful because there can be so many within northwestern Australia that if you do leave the marina, you might see one straight away, which is absolutely amazing. Mm -hmm. But you have to be careful on your boat because you don't want to injure the animal and it could also be very disastrous for your boat or the boat could get flipped if a whale breaches too close to you. The boat might get flipped, which has happened before um, in wow. northwestern Australia. So when the a whale breached, it actually flipped the boat. Um, and there's also been some strikes as well for whales, and and it's damaged the hull of the vessel. Um, but then you're so focused on the hull of the vessel that you're not sure what actually happened to the whale. So yes, there are a lot of whales around. But I'm not sure that's the reason why people in Western Australia want to swim with them. Mm -hmm. It is actually an increasing industry around the world. So swim with industry is increasing because it is increasing the revenue. Mm -hmm. So um, it's also increasing on the East Coast. So it began in 2014 in Harvey Bay, but now it's also off Mooloolabar, off Jarvis Bay and off Coffs Harbour. So that's why it's important to get information out and do research on the swim with industry so we know more about it so that we can minimise the impacts to the whales, but we can also make recommendations to management about minimising impact but also on swim safety. Of course, and um, I think partially uh, the increase of all these swimming is has been, you know, due to social media, which on one side has been amazing to raise awareness for the plight of many marine creatures, but also simultaneously, um, we've been seeing more and more unethical uh, marine interactions to get that photo or that video um, for the social media pages. So potentially that may have something to do with uh, these increasing industries. But of course, since there are so many people who are wanting to do it, um, places like Australia have had very strict regulations put in place, um, even for approaching a whale with a vessel, let alone swimming with them. So what were these recommendations based off of? Yeah, so in Australia, we have the National Whale and Dolphin Watching Guidelines. And this is for anybody with a vessel. And with these guidelines, it states that you can watch a baling whale, so a large whale, 
from 100 meters. And if it has a calf, you can watch it from 300 meters. And then in 2016, the swim with industry was initiated in Western Australia of Ningaloo. And the environmental minister at the time was the, what I, I understand is the, was the instigator for this. Mm-hmm. And then Department of Biodiversity Conservation Attractions, so that's the government DBCA, at the time had to pull together some license conditions. And over the five years, which is this is now the fifth year, they've termed this as a trial. And within those trial years, they could adjust those license conditions as per scientific recommendations or as per input from the operators. And then in 2021, next year, is when they're transitioning into a long-term industry. So adjustments can still be made. And even once they're into a long-term industry, uh, I, I understand that they'll have an adaptive management plan where they can still adjust the license conditions as well as needed. So after these incidences, it'll be interesting to see if anything will be adjusted. So the trial passed a couple of years ago and it was deemed successful. What, what exactly were, there, were they trialing or what, what methods were they using to see whether it was safe for the whales and the swimmers? So in 2016, they started the trial mm-hmm. and it's still continuing. This year is still, this is the fifth year of the trial. Mm-hmm. So what they are testing is how feasible and how sustainable the industry is. Mm-hmm. Initially, in the first year of the trial, for example, um, one license condition was that they were allowed to approach the whales from the side to 50 meter distance. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then the next year, from 2017 onwards, that distance was adjusted to 75 meters. So for this year, the vessel is allowed to approach the whales to 75 meters from the side, and they're still allowed to approach in front of the whales at 150 meters. And that's just one example of how license conditions can be altered and how they can be changed to minimize impact on whales or to make it easier for the operators. So for example, in 2016, the license conditions stated that the vessels were to go five knots, Mm -hmm. but then as per operator recommendations, some of their vessels, they they mentioned that they can't go five knots and the slowest they can go um, is around eight knots. So then the speed limit around the whales was increased from five knots to eight knots. All right, that makes sense if the boats can't go slower. Um, And what was kind of measured in terms of the impacts on 
the humpback whales and their safety and their comfort, I guess, or I'm not quite sure how to put that, but yeah, yeah. their feelings. <laughs> yeah. So in 2016, DBCA contracted several researchers to conduct research. One team through Murdoch University uh, studied the social science aspect and they studied visitors' expectations and mm -hmm. satisfaction. So they did interviews with visitors and asked them a whole array of questions about um, if they're likely to do it again and how safe they felt. Mm -hmm. And then another group of researchers through Curtin University and University of Tasmania were contracted to look at the distribution of mother and calves and off Ningaloo Reef and Coral Bay to see where the calves were and the hotspots and how many were coming through, so the distribution and the numbers. And then the next group of people that they contracted were was our team through Murdoch University. And we focus on the humpback whales. So we conducted research from our own research vessel where we look at behavioural changes in whales. And that is then able to determine if there's an impact on the whales or not. So we did a before, during and after experimental design. Mm -hmm. And that means that there's three different phases. So you look at what the whale is doing before the impact so before they swim with the whales so the before is their control behavior and that's are they how fast are they swimming how often are they breathing are they doing any surface active behaviors mm -hmm. and then so we record all that and we record every occurrence that anytime a whale takes a breath anytime it dives what type of dive it does and the speed that they're going and then the during phase is when the whale watch vessel comes in and places their swimmers in the water mm -hmm. and then we record okay how fast are they going are the whales going now how often are they breathing now and are they diving more often Mm -hmm. And then we do the after. So then we have an, an an after phase of an extra 30 minutes after of are those whales going back to their original behavioral state that when we first found them? So how were they impacted so much that they don't go back to their normal behavioral state? And so we look at all these different metrics and we found that they are impacted. So they do increase their swim speed and they do increase their respiration rate. So the number of times that they take a breath mm -hmm. uh, when the boat is around. And a lot of this is primarily because the vessel is placed in front of the whales. Yeah. So in Western Australia off Ningaloo Reef, it's a migratory corridor for humpback whales so this means that the whales are traveling through and they've really got the purpose of just going north or just going south mm -hmm. and 
This means that when a vessel wants to place their swimmers in the water, a lot of the time, if you place swimmers in the water, say behind the whale, that mm -hmm. whale doesn't care and it will keep swimming away. So they drive parallel to the whale. They'll pick up speed to increase the speed past the whales. They'll cut in front of the whales past 150 meters, which is the license conditions. Mm -hmm. They'll then place the swimmers in the water. So that's when they say, go, 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 like yeah. get off the boat. And then the boat will move out of the way. So it's basically akin to say you've got a herd of elephants walking in one direction mm -hmm. and you've got your safari jeep. They're basically driving the safari jeep up past them, cutting in front of them, kicking people out of the safari jeep <laughs> and then moving the jeep to the other side. But the only thing with that is that whales primary sensory modality is hearing unlike ours which is sight mm -hmm. so we can see that safari jeep and where that is for example like elephants would yeah. know where that jeep is because they can see it whereas whales will hear the vessel they know where that vessel is coming from say if if there's only one vessel they can t they'd be able to pinpoint where the vessel is it's a different story if there's a lot of noise around or a lot of different vessels, they might not be able to tell the directionality. Mm -hmm. But when you put a noise source in front of a whale, it is they're then likely going to change direction. And that's what we found is that they have to alter their course, which is a change in behavior because the vessel mm -hmm. is disturbing them. Yeah. And so so if they're migrating and they're trying to travel north and then a vessel keeps trying to put different groups of swimmers or a different vessel then tries on the same group of whales, then those whales will have to keep altering their course because they've got a disturbance in front of them. They have a noise source. Mm -hmm. And that then also asks the question of if, if they're migrating fast, and they're traveling through, they might be able to understand where the vessel is. Mm -hmm. But do they know that that vessel actually puts swimmers in the water? And what they might not know until one of the last minutes, especially if it's very turbid waters, which a lot of the time up Ningaloo Reef, you can get some very pristine days there, but sometimes mm -hmm. it can be um, stirred up. And if there's big swell coming in off the back of the reef, it might be stirred up. There's some really big so, swell out there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so it drops off very quickly up Ningaloo Reef. So it's got some nice um, swell there. So, yeah, it's these are the behavioural changes that we looked at. And in 2016, when we were contracted by the government, we wrote up a report. And in this report, this governmental report that anybody is free to access, it's online, mm -hmm. um, we wrote up our findings of the impact on the whales and swimmer safety. So we, uh, we mentioned with my colleagues through Murdoch University, who we were contracted through, um, the percentage of time that there were high-risk situations mm -hmm. where people were when they're swimming with whales off 
Ningaloo, the license conditions state that you're to be 30 metres away from the whales. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this is very, very difficult because sometimes the swimmers might be in the water and yeah, it might be so turbid that they don't even know where the whales are and they could be right underneath them. Like the whales could be under the swimmers, but they're not even aware of that. Yeah. Whereas a spotter plane might be able to see the whales and tell the swimmers to put their heads in the water. But it's a, it's um, it's if a, if a whale is approaching a human, they're meant to kick backwards and take all action that they can to remain 30 meters. But when you've got tiny swimmers in the water, it's a bit, it's a, it's very difficult to try and keep your 30 meters if you've got a large humpback whale who within seconds can be very close to you like that yeah. it's it's not um yeah so then uh, from our report in that we gave to the government we then turned that into a scientific publication a peer-reviewed scientific publication mm-hmm. and so the information is is now now published and that's also freely available online yeah and especially because i have worked in the tourism industry and we did humpback whale swims in um in the comoros and there were no rules at all but of course you know the bosses wanted these interactions to happen so without knowing i actually took the recommendations you guys wrote up um for 2016 um, and used those in Africa in 2018. We had an amazing um, humpback whale um, year, but those groups were tiny and we had tiny boats and there was just our um, our company there. So even in the times we were with the humpback whales in the water, it was maximum like six people. So I can't imagine, you know, the impacts that Ningaloo is having with these larger groups with so many boats out there because there's like, what, 13 tourism operations? Um, um, and, you know, even without doing scientific research, we could definitely see that um, we were impacting the humpback whales' behavior um, just by being there. They would always alter their course. Um, and that's why in so many of the cases we just decided or tried to. And now I have... Um, I've swam with them a few times this year, but in all the interactions we've had is they've come to us. So we were just free diving or diving on a reef and then the humpback whales actually came to check us out. So I think, you know, that's a very different (laughs) kind of situation when the humpback whales are like leading the interaction as opposed to really cutting them off because that description you gave is quite, you know, traumatizing in a whale to the whales if you if you think about it from their perspective that their path is getting cut off and if they're you know hurrying up to migrate and then they're just being stopped along the way yeah so with the humpback whale migration in different parts of the world they'll use different areas for different purposes mm-hmm so Ningaloo is the migration corridor, the migration path. But then in, for example, that's off the west side of the Northwest Cape, whereas on the east side of the Northwest Cape is Exmouth Gulf. And that is a resting area. It's a very important mm-hmm. resting area. 
and here whales are sleeping on the surface resting and mm -hmm. they they they're on the surface like a log so it's called logging yeah and the mother and the calf will log on the surface and she's using this area to stay there for potentially several days or a few weeks or a couple of weeks to feed her calf so mm -hmm. that the calf can grow big enough and strong enough to make the migration back to Antarctica and she's conserving her energy so these areas are very important and they're very important to reduce the disturbance on the whales so we've actually done a lot of research through Murdoch University in Exmouth Gulf and here our colleague he uses drones to measure the length and the width of the whales mm -hmm. and here he actually found that mothers of Western Australia can grow up to 16 meters in length and that when they're feeding their calf that calf can actually grow three centimeters a day in length Oh, just wow. from feeding of her, of her milk and the larger and the stronger the calf is the less likely it will be predated upon mm -hmm. so the smaller the calf is that which is termed a neonate so when it's when it's a brand new baby very small that's when killer whales are, are likely to predate on the neonates of of Ningaloo reef and so mm -hmm. our other colleague, he works on the western side of Ningaloo Reef and he studies the killer whales and the yeah. humpback whales on that side. But in different areas, humpback whales use different areas for different purposes. And this is just an example of how different the migratory corridor is compared to a resting ground or a breeding mm -hmm. ground. And in different locations around the world, um, they might swim with humpbacks in, diff in these different areas. So a humpback whale is, is a cosmopolitan species, so that means that they're found in oceans around the world. Mm -hmm. And so they are a coastal species, so they're easily accessible by boats and by humans. So for the swim with whale industry with large whales, baleen whales, uh, the humpback whale is the number one target for whale watching because it's very high, highly acrobatic, like mm -hmm. visual displays, they're very pleasing, but also for the swim with industry. And this is because they are accessible to, to tourists in many countries. And as you were saying, like with your experiences, there might not be guidelines in all of these different locations. Yeah. And that's why it's really important for Australia and Western Australia to have best practice guidelines so that other countries can use the best practice guidelines and can follow them and we can lead by example. And even on the East Coast, the East Coast has of Australia has been popping up with swim with tourism. Mm -hmm. And they haven't done research on the East Coast. Nothing has been peer-reviewed over here. So they don't know the impacts on the whales mm -hmm. and they don't know about, um, you know, what guidelines are best 
to reduce the disturbance on the whales. And so Western Australia really, you know, there is the potential for them to be able to build into something that is best practice, like their whale shark industry. So a lot of people come to the Ningaloo Reef to swim with whale sharks. Mm -hmm. And it was the whale shark operators, so the people who had the licenses for whale sharks were given the licenses for swimming with humpback whales. Yeah. And that's why that's why there's so many com companies that are allowed to do it currently. And that might change as of next year in 2021, but that's up to the government. Mm -hmm. um, but, but it's also whale sharks are known to be more docile yeah. and humpback whales are a mammal and they are definitely a different species and even if the operator or the skipper does get some training on humpback whales it really is about gaining that experience with a marine mammal marine mammals in general and humpback whales specifically so some of the operators they already do whale watching, so they understand how the whale, you know, predict their movements, predict their downtime. Mm -hmm. They can see how calm they are. They can see if it's an appropriate whale or potentially appropriate whale to swim with. They could maybe sense if it's having a, a, some more aggressive or agonistic behaviours mm -hmm. and they might not put their swimmers in the water, whereas... Um, and that experience comes with, with time and it's to do with the skipper. So if the skipper um, is changing and it, or is new or might not have experience with marine mammals or humpback whales specifically, mm -hmm. then that knowledge is just, is, it might not be there. And, and that's something that um, is, is important to, to gain for the, for the swimmer safety. But for also reducing the disturbance on humpback whales. So, if, for example, if the skipper is always changing gears on the vessel, mm -hmm. those gears actually create, it's kind of like a gunshot under the water. They're very loud noises, the clicking of the gears. Mm -hmm. And if they're changing direction all the time, if they're an erratic driver, then this is already going to place disturbance on the whales. Mm -hmm. Whereas if they're driving at a slow, calm, constant rate, then the, the whale knows where you are. It, it, it can um, predict that you'll stay in that constant pace mm -hmm. and it might not be as disturbed as okay. if you were driving erratically. Yeah, that makes sense. This week's episode is sponsored by you guys, by all the patrons who contribute to the Ocean Pancake Patreon. Uh, you guys help me continue the work I am doing. So if you guys want to join in and head on over there, um, you get behind the scenes footage, you get to vote on what kind of topics we cover, and we get to have some one-on-one -on -one conversations. So see you there. In, in your professional opinion or is there enough research to know whether the whales are less disturbed by um 
interactions happening in the areas where they rest and do the logging or when they're on the move or migrating? Yeah, so it's a very good question. So we did our research in the migratory path mm -hmm. of Tonga. They have a vow in Tonga Tapu where they do a lot of the, I probably pronounced them wrong. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, they, they've done swim with humpback whales there for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And they, they swim with, with um, all sorts of whales, including mothering calves, some companies, not all companies. Um, and some companies allow a distance of 10 meters, I think, to the whales. And that is a breeding calving ground. Mm -hmm. And I know in the past that what I've heard from friends who are operators over there is that if there was an incident between a human and a whale, like a snorkeler, snorkeler in the water, then mm -hmm it might not be publicized in the media because it's bad for tourism. Mm, yeah. um, but we've recently had a colleague, Lorenzo Fiori, he did some research, he did his PhD in Tonga and he was using drones as well to look at the impact of the swimming industry on the whales. And when he was video recording, he actually recorded uh, a few incidences between mother and calves and other whales yeah. with the swimmers. So he actually has that online now. It's published online and he's got the videos online as well. So you can see how the behaviour is towards the swimmers. And in mm -hmm. one incident, the whale hit the person and the person wasn't able to move their legs afterwards so they weren't able to swim oh, so the geez. other people had to come in and grab the swimmer and even though the whale was still there potentially could have hit them again yeah um they had to come in and grab this person and drag them away and, and that's so that's a, a breeding resting area and then also of reunion islands Mm -hmm. um, in the Indian Ocean, they've had several incidences there and new research has come out to show those incidences and they've actually got one research paper that has come out from colleagues this, this year and it's showing how social media, with the increase of social media and everybody has a phone or somebody mm -hmm. has a drone or, you know, people on the water with with their filming how they use that social media so they gather that that all that uh, media and from that they then categorize well how many times were the whales being aggressive or how many incidences did we see mm -hmm. and so they could actually use that footage and analyze that footage um, and there's been several incidences there where people have been injured or people have been pushed down under the water or whether from a, a pectoral fin or the arm of the whale or the tail of the whale. Um, so even in 2016 when we were recording the, doing, doing our research off Nigali Reef, 
mm-hmm. we we had an incident then as well and it just wasn't put in the media because they it it they were still injured but they weren't airlifted to Perth hospital like what has happened um this time mm-hmm. but there was an incident where they were swimming with a, a mother in calf and the mother she moved her pectoral fin and it fractured somebody's ribs and then it, and then it hit the person the other person as well so two people and they had cuts and abrasions to their arm and ankle um and so that happened in 2016 off Ningaloo Reef during a swim with whale tour um so it it some have reported in the media for these recent incidences that they're freak accidents but it's not a freak accident because it's happened off Ningaloo before it's happened off Tonga it's happened off Reunion Island like it's bound to happen again and it's just when you're swimming with wildlife such large animals these these incidences are likely to occur um even in 2016, off the Rolly Shoals, um, mm-hmm. a snorkeler was hit in between the legs and he was pushed down into the water. And he, by a mother as well, from her pectoral fin. And that's on YouTube. So you can see that on YouTube, uh, the video where he he's pushed several metres below the surface oh, in between geez. his legs. And... Um, yeah, and that's all in our report and in our scientific paper, these incidences. And from that, from our research, we did recommend in 2016 to not swim with mother and calves. Mm-hmm. It is dangerous to swim with mother and calves. And it's also, they're, they're the most sensitive to disturbance. Yeah. So if you want to limit your impact on the whales, then then it then you want to not swim with mother and calves they have the highest energetic costs because the mother needs to feed her young she mm-hmm. can't feed again to replace any energy that is lost and the calf needs that milk to be able to grow larger as fast as possible so it can make it back to antarctica um it's also the international whaling commissions and the australian national guidelines they they don't endorse swimming with whales and they don't endorse swimming with mother and calf so mm-hmm. off ningaloo it's actually going against what national and international recommendations are and so we don't endorse swimming swimming with whales either but especially mother and calves and Mm -hmm. these incidences that have occurred this week so so one occurred on the 1st of August and and then five days later another incident occurred both with mother and calves and initially from the government in 2016 a license condition was not to swim with mother and calves they didn't want that to happen but 
unfortunately at the time the definition for a calf in their mm -hmm. license conditions was that a calf is less than 50 percent the length of the mother oh yeah but then so in august early august late july is when you'll have your smaller calves because they're just migrating north so they're the they're the young ones and they mm -hmm. will be the small ones and that's also the, the time that you've got the juveniles around so you've also got a lot of single adults so there's a lot of other whales that the swim with industry and the operators can swim with but the license condition stated yeah this definition of the calf what we had actually found from our research in 2015 of western australia in exmouth gulf we were with our colleagues we measured the length and the width of the whales and we actually found that calves of western australia do grow longer than 50 percent the length of the mother so a calf can be say between around four meters up to 7.7 to 8 meters and that's a calf that was born that year so a young of the year calf and they're only a few months old so we actually informed the government that the definition needs to be updated mm -hmm. it needs to encompass all calves because as of late october what or oh, late august i mean sorry is that there's a staggered migration so the juveniles start heading back to antarctica early then the adults will start heading back and the last ones that are left and the last ones to leave australian waters back to antarctica mm -hmm. are the mother and calves and by that time they are a lot so this is about um late august october start of november a lot of them uh, mother and calves but then they'll have their calves will be bigger mm -hmm. and so then the swim with industry began swimming with these larger calves uh so the, then the government said oh okay we'll update our definition and they did but that only lasted about two weeks because the swim with industry said that for it to be feasible for them mm -hmm. to continue the season into October, start of November, the only choice they have is to swim with mother and calves. So the license condition was reverted so that they are now able to swim with calves that are greater than 50% the length of the mother. So they still might only be a few months old or a couple of months old um, because, uh, yeah, a larger mother, actually has a larger calf so it might still be a young animal yeah but that's what they're now allowed to swim with off western australia however because now it's the northern migration these calves are going to be small mm -hmm. and they the incidences are likely to be with calves that they should not be in the water with mm -hmm. Um, the first incident happened where they were on a swim with whale tour 
and they were purposely the swimmers were purposely put in the water to swim with the whales there's a spotter pilot there to or generally there to say if that calf is larger than 50 Mm -hmm. percent the length of the mother or not um from the statements that i've read they they mentioned that the calf was five to six meters and this actually does mean that it is a young of the year calf it's not a yearling a yearling means that it's a year old so it's a year later mm-hmm. and sometimes the mum will come up still with that that calf that yearling of hers and they'll separate a lot of the time they'll separate in Antarctica or they might separate as they they reach Australia uh, mm-hmm. generally up north you'll see yearlings by themselves but a yearling will be about eight meters in length it won't be five yeah. five meters so um the first incident happened where uh it was with a mother and calf and unfortunately one of the people were airlifted to Perth hospital yeah and then five days later another incident happened where they were snorkeling off the back of the reef and the back of the reef of Ningaloo reef it, you know it's a fringing reef it's such a beautiful reef there's a drop off and that's where you've got a lot of of beautiful life for the tourists to look at but all the operators know everybody knows that along the back of the reef is the calf corridor the humpback whale calf corridor mm-hmm. and when you're on a humpback whale tour when you're doing a humpback whale swim as per the license conditions the only way that you can go off the back of the reef is if you're swimming with uh, larger calves or mm-hmm. with with whales that don't have a calf so the incident happened on a pre-snorkel and so you go and you snorkel in this area and then the operator will then take you out to swim with the whale sharks mm-hmm. or with the humpback whale. Um, but what happens a lot of the time on the back of the reef is that they know that it's migration time for the humpback whales, so it's very likely that a humpback whale will swim past at the same time that you're snorkeling there. And, of course, you can't, it's hard. You can't manage that because you can't tell people to not swim on the back of the reef. Like yeah it's like telling someone they can't walk on the sidewalk um but it it is the area where the mother and calves used to swim past and the operators can use that to advance their advantage and say oh wow look a mother and calf or or a humpback whale has just swum past how lucky are you Mm -hmm. um but they know because that's you know you've got 30,000 whales coming past yeah, that's where they go. They use, they like to hug the back of the reef, um, also for safety reasons, from from um, from predation of killer whales. Yeah. Um, but so the second incident happened on a pre-snorkel, where they were snorkeling and then they were asked to group together 
because uh, they knew that a humpback whale mother and calf was coming and mm-hmm. unfortunately um, another lady or another person was airlifted to Perth Hospital with some more injuries and then some other per- people were also injured. So that's two incidences within five days and some people have asked me if they're the same whales but because it's a migratory corridor and there's many whales traveling through there every day it's highly unlikely to be the same whales and and I would say no it's definitely not mm-hmm. um because they don't rest there they're not staying there they're not milling there they're just traveling through and the only way that you can tell that is if you have photographs of the either the dorsal fin of both of them to look at the shape mm-hmm. of the dorsal fin or the pigmentation along the sides of the whale. Um, but it is the start of the swim with season, so that is why uh, they both occurred at this time because you've got the people in the water and then you've got a lot of whales going past, so it increases the chances of injury and it's just unfortunate that that two of them did go to hospital and and several others were injured with lesser injuries um but you know this might have also happened in 2017 to 2019 and we just don't we're not informed of it because maybe they weren't sent to hospital so maybe it wasn't in the media um and we're just not we're not informed about every incident well, that's that's the thing. Like you guys even created. Well, you did the research. You found the answers, which is especially mothers with their babies. Like in any mammal, uh, they're going to be much more likely to be defensive or potentially, you know, um, stressed out by the situation. And um, even with the recommendations, the recommendations were ignored because <laughs> at the end of the day, it's the financial. Um, things that matter more to these companies for now um what do you think is going to happen next or what what would be your recommendations to what they should be doing should we expect that there may be more incidences like this um coming up this season are are they continuing what's happening now like are they continuing the tours yeah so one of our recommendations was for no suing with mother and calves for, mm-hmm. the, for the energetic reason but also for the swimmer safety reason yeah another of our recommendations was to not do in path vessel approaches so that's where they put the vessel in the path mm-hmm. of the traveling whales and we said that because our research did find that that was the most invasive approach and it did disturb the whales the most so if they wanted to reduce the impact on the whales, mm-hmm. then we recommend to not do in-path approaches. And we also recommend this because it's also found from science back in 2001 from colleagues on dolphins with the swim with industry. They mm-hmm. also recommended to not do in-path approaches, but also from other colleagues of Canada and they found that the same happened with killer whales. So they, they know that in-path approaches, or they also refer to it as the J approach. So it's like 
the line of the J and then the hook of the J because you're going in front of mm-hmm. the whale. But they, it's been several publications to say how invasive this approach actually is. And it's not recommended by the International Whaling Commission either. So this is one of the regulatory bodies that we that our science goes to. And um, they continue they continue in, in Western Australia off Ningaloo to do the in-path vessel approaches. And they do this because it is a migratory corridor. So they they basically they they need to move in front of the animals. And mm-hmm. so it's basically saying well, that's the only way we can do it, so we're going to disturb the animals. Yeah. Um, sometimes off the coast you'll be able to find animal or whales that are milling, and that means just staying in the one spot, or um, some animals might be singing, uh, they might be hanging vertically or staying in one position. And with those animals you can approach from the side very slowly Mm-hmm. The swimmers can go into the water more carefully and calmly. They don't have to get pushed off the back, back of the vessel and the operators don't need to, to yell like, go, go, go. Um, then they then they can make a calm approach to the 30-metre distance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for spreading, you know, some information about what actually happened and what the recommendations were and why it it is not recommended to get into the water with these big mammals, um, whether it's, you know, males or mothers with their babies, um, but especially mothers with their calves. So I really appreciate you taking the time to join us on the Ocean Pancake. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Kind of some last um, words of wisdom for the audience who may be interested in seeing humpback whales? Well, yeah, as you know, I can I can talk I can speak a lot about whales, so yeah. um, I could continue talking for a very long time. <laughs> but yeah, if if anyone's interested, please seek the research that we have out there mm-hmm. through Murdoch University, and um, just be be aware and be safe. Mm-hmm and try and go with a recommended operator. And we'll just have to wait and see that, see if Australia can be best practice off Ningaloo and, you know, off, off East Coast Australia. It, it's very different. They do it differently. They do it off mermaid lines, mm-hmm. which is a, a rope off the back of the boat where they put the boat in neutral and they only swim with juveniles and adults. They don't swim with mother and calves especially mm-hmm. like off here, off Harvey Bay, where I am now. So it's up to the whale, if the whale wants to come in and investigate the boat yeah. and all the swimmers, and then they can leave when they want to leave. So different different locations do different things, and in different areas, whales are behaving differently as well. So there's a lot to consider, and there's a lot to consider with the complexity of it, including the, the the operators' livelihoods and their income and the and the government and the the guidelines that they need to put in place, um, but also our research and our recommendations. So 
um, yeah, it's a very complex uh, situation, but thank you so much for having me on and thank you so much for taking the time to discuss many, many points. <laughs> and um, yeah, there's many facets to it all. So I hope your listeners can gain some knowledge from that. Oh, for sure. And um, uh, as always, I'm going to include all of this information that we talked about in the show notes. So I'm going to make sure Kate sends me the <laughs> scientific papers and where you guys can access them and read through all of that just so we can be as best informed as we can because we don't want to upset any whales and we don't want more people to get injured. <laughs> so, yep. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you once again, Dr. Kate Sprogis, for taking your valuable time to educate us a little bit better about what is happening with humpback whale interactions, and um, let us know how we should be behaving if we see these amazing creatures out in the wild. As always, thank you so much to Graham Mose, who's the mind behind the music in this podcast episode. He is from Brisbane, Australia, so if you guys live over there, you should check him out live. Otherwise, you can support him through online uh, music sales, etc. So Graham Mose Music. Once again, thank you so much to my patrons for letting me do this work. And if you guys want to join the patron family, head on over to Ocean Pancake. Thank you guys so much and I'll see you next time.